You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hey, my name is Stephen Ward, uh, pastor from Spokane. So glad to join you again here today on week three of our series, Rock of Ages. Uh, last week, Keith kind of led us through in, in uh, chapter two of First Peter, and we are continuing on into chapter three. But I wanted to kind of look again at kind of what Keith led us into, which was, um, first of all, we're talking to a persecuted people. Peter is writing to a group of people who are finding themselves dispersed. They're in foreign land. And last week, Keith began to kind of refer to them or really Peter's exhortation. Um, Keith is referring to the idea that they were to be foreigners in this land. Now, this was both symbolic and actually they are foreigners. They were also called to like live in the world, but not of the world. So they're not to find their identity, uh, their home found in where they're living, among the people where they're living. They're to be in the world. They're supposed to make a difference in the world, but they're not supposed to find their identity and make it their home. Other things where while they're facing persecution, they are not to respond by seeking vengeance, retribution. Instead, there's this crazy radical statement where Peter is calling this group of people to live a different way, to instead respond with grace. Now, again, that seems ridiculous, seems foreign, seems like there is no way that should be the call when a group of people are facing persecution, but that is the call. He also, uh, Keith referred that Jesus modeled this so that we could follow his example. When Jesus was persecuted, when he was beaten, when he was whipped, even when he was on the cross, he responded with grace. He actually prayed, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This leads us to be a different kind of people. And as you respond in that way, it's actually more transformational. And, and we learned that through chapter two, these major themes. We're gonna build off of that in chapter three. What do we mean by that? Well, I know the type of person I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a person that responds to persecution or pushback or pressure with grace. But how do I endure? How do I remain that type of a person in the midst of persecution? Like for my lifetime, how am I supposed to consistently live that out among ideas of persecution or pressure or suffering. And so chapter three, Peter begins to give us this framework for how we actually live this out. But I also wanted to talk about persecution during this time looked very specific. There was beatings, there was whipping, there was persecution by put, putting people in prison, there was beheading, there was putting uh, Christians, these early believers, in coliseums and having them killed for sport. There, there was crucifixions where Christians were put on, nailed on crosses. All of the above was, this, was an idea of persecution during this time of the early church. Well, 
Here in America, that doesn't exactly translate as one-to-one. In other places around the world, in Asia or North Africa, we do see still ideas of persecution that would be very similar to what the early church went through. But in America, we don't find ourselves facing persecution in that way yet. So what kind of persecution do we face? Or maybe a, a better way of looking at that would be not necessarily persecution, but opposition or suffering, or maybe pressure might be a better way or or a better context to maybe frame this in. So what kind of opposition or pressure or suffering do we face today in America as believers? Well, over the past several years, maybe you've sensed a growing uh, sense or a growing frame of restriction for maybe our rights as believers. Maybe our rights, you would say, our rights to gather are being diminished. Our rights to um, hold to our beliefs are being diminished. How are they maybe being diminished? Well, maybe they're being diminished even in a sense of the pressure side of it. I'm being canceled. Possibly you could even be fired for for, um, publicly holding to a certain beliefs that you might have. You could definitely be canceled. You could lose friends. You could lose job. You could lose family. You might even feel pressure around where you live. So what are other ways you might feel this opposition? Well, when we might be forced to fund something that is against our beliefs, like there there have been legal battles lately when companies who are owned by Christians are forced to offer insurance that would pay for abortions, where maybe as a believer you'd say, that goes fundamentally against a conviction that I have that I would actually fund something like that. So You might say that's a framed opposition to my Christian belief that I hold today. Maybe you find yourself again canceled for certain beliefs, losing friends, losing jobs, maybe even losing family. Maybe you're just being labeled unjustly for standing up for a value that's maybe not what culture has deemed the preeminent value. Maybe your value is trumped by culture's value and you feel like, man, I'm unjustly being um, labeled or put in categories these days. Uh, An example of that could be, man, if, if I hold um, standing up for unborn children as a high value and yet another value culture may trump that with, we can begin to be put in various categories pretty quickly. When I'm shamed for not complying with culture, uh, cultural pressures, what kind of pressures could that be? Well, especially for young people today, um, the idea that maybe um, uh, if, if I have a different view of how someone is born, if I believe God created men and women as men and women, then that's a pretty unpopular view these days. And I could be pressured by even authorities to say, no, you, that, that's actually racism or bigotry to have that as a public stance or a public view, sexual identity, sexual freedom even as our young people, whether that's teenagers or, or even our young adults in colleges are facing this constant pressure towards freedom outside the bounds of marriage. So if I say God set up sex to be in a safe environment when a trusted relationship within the bounds of marriage, the pressure of society is to say that's antiquated. We don't live that way, way anymore. And if you want to fit into your social group, you actually need to live in opposition to that truth. 
pressures. What about absolute truth? If I say God has defined truth and I find truth in, in the sense of God's word, again, in a lot of our um, establishments today in schools, colleges, we could say you could find pressure by authorities and actually be shamed or get failing grades by professors or teachers by holding that to be true. Man, a big one today, exclusivity of the gospel. For us to say there is one way to God is seen as being, again, um, man, racially intolerant. If I say my the, the way that the Bible defines as the pathway to God through Jesus Christ is the only way, I'm seen as being racially intolerant. I'm seen as being a bigot. I'm seen as uh, worthy of being canceled and, and maybe even worse. It, it is a day and time where some of these things, you'll be called a racist, could be considered a hate crime. You could even be kicked out of schools. How do we live out our faith in an obedience following Jesus through obedience? How do we live out our faith in this opposition in a way that would display grace? How do we live out our faith when we're facing more and more of these pressures, oppositions, and potentially suffering that comes out of it? Today, we're going to look, how do we respond with grace in a way that endures, in a way that allows us from our early parts of our Christian faith to the end to stand firmly, but to respond with grace when we face these pressures in an increasingly divisive world. 1 Peter 3.8 is where we're going to begin. And it really begins to set the tone for the first way that Peter is going to share. How do we endure? So we're going to look again at 1 Peter 3.8. He says this, finally, all of you, speaking to believers, so all of you believers, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So he's describing a type of people they should be. He's describing them, all of you, all of you who are believers, these should be descriptors of you. Be like-minded. Now, what he's not meaning by that is uniformity, that we're to be clones of each other, but that's more speaking to the idea of unity or harmony. Being like-minded is the idea that we're going to find our unity in the essentials. How do we find unity even in our diverse world when, when within one church body, we're supposed to be like-minded, unified, but we could find ourselves increasingly in a very divided world depending on what morals or what values or even what, what part, political party you find yourself in. These days, any of those things can become so divisive, not just within the outside world, but even among us as believers. We're seeing, man, I can't worship with you because of the party you hold to, because of uh, a uh, one moral piece that you hold over another or one value that you place over another. We begin to put each other in boxes pretty quickly. How do we fight against that as a people of God? How can I worship with you if we hold to some things that by our culture's definition, should be very divisive and should cause us to not be able to be unified, not be able to live in harmony with one another. Well, he begins to kind of list those out. I need to begin to offer sympathy. 
I need to approach you with a sympathy, and it's more in a stance, that idea that I'm going to be sympathetic to your beliefs. I'm going to be sympathetic. I'm not going to force something on you. I'm going to approach you in a way that in some ways places your cares, and I should care more about you than myself. That kind of posture of leaning into each other, not saying you should hold my beliefs in in all of its entirety, but instead I'm going to be sympathetic to listen to who you are at the core of who you are. I'm going to approach this sympathetically, not just that, but I'm to love. We, We know through scripture, Jesus said we're to love each other the way he loved us, which means it's a die to self first type of love. It's not, I'm going to love you if you love me first, Or if you treat me the way I think you should treat me, it is a I'm dying to self to love you, unconditional type of love that's being spoken of here. Compassionate. (laughs) There's times where Jesus looks at a crowd or looks from a hill uh, into a town and he's He is compassion for them and it drives him to serve them. It's what drives him to minister to the needs of people. And we're to find that same compassion from Christ within us to the ability to, again, die to self. My compassion should drive me to desire to serve you, my desire to minister to you. This should be descriptive of people of God. And last, and I don't know if it's first, but man, I I can't think of anything that kills uh, unity more than pride. When I'm coming in with I'm more important than you, or I'm right and you're not, or I'm first and you're last, that first mentality or that I'm better than you mentality just kills an ability for there to be genuine community. Instead, there is to be this humility. What what we don't mean is coming in and you're a doormat or you're coming in and there's this false sense of, uh, I've just, I've got to be below everything. But there's this genuine sense of respect and, and humility where I'm placing you first as I'm approaching this community. It's not a, I'm self seeking, self serving. Man, this is to be a description of the people of God. I wonder today, as our culture around us looks at the church, what would they describe our stance is even just to each other? When I look at social media and I look at how Christians are uh, treating each other publicly, how we are way more laced with anger, way more Um, ready to fight, way more ready to leave and abandon our community or our family. I don't see a lot of these descriptions when I look at public stances of, of how Christians are treating each other. I'm not even talking about the outside world. I just mean how we are leaning into each other in this sense of community. Why are this, why is this important? Because my identity is driven from God. I'm to be, I'm to live as a foreigner in the world that I'm, that I'm living in, as we found in chapter two. But part of my identity is that I belong to a people and I belong to a people that belong to God. So I have an identity in that I belong to God, but I also find identity in that I belong to a certain group and they are believers. They are God's people. And in that, there is a sense of being, 
belonging, safeness, that I'm not alone in this foreignness of living in the world. I belong to a group. I'm accepted by this group. We're in this together. And yet, man, between culture, divisive topics, and COVID over the past year and a half, I would say this is less descriptive of we as a people of God than maybe ever before. And, and I, I, it's no wonder that people are struggling to live out their faith in the culture that we have as foreigners and find their identity in God when we as a people of God are less united and less ability to, to be one than we've ever, maybe ever been ever before. Do you find yourself now at times being suspicious of even people of God? Do you find yourself saying, I'm not sure I can fully be authentic because I don't know if I'll be accepted, that I'll be approached with compassion and, and that people will listen to me with humility? Maybe I feel like I'll be more rejected if I'm really authentic today than I ever have before. And I would say that's probably pretty common in the idea of insecurity to really drop my guard with a group uh, called the church today. We, we've, always, we, we've had a reputation of shooting our wounded already, but now that you add the big topics of, man, if, if you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat, we cannot worship together. Or if, if you believe in abortion, that means you're in this box. If, if you hold the highest value of, of uh, racial equality in this box, we, we're now in separate boxes. The ideas of the boxes that we're allowing culture to put us in, it's crazy that we can't find unity together as a people of God that trumps those differences in our world today. We need each other to endure the opposition from the outside, but so many times we're so busy fighting on the inside that we have zero ability to find security when we face opposition from the culture around us. We feel like we're isolated. We're on islands, we're alone, and I can't even be myself with other believers. How in the world can I live authentically in a world that at times seems like it hates me? The way that we're going to find an ability to endure opposition, suffering, and pressure of the living as a foreigner in our world today is if we as a people of God find commonality in being people of God, loving each other the way Jesus loved us, being compassionate to each other, being humble as we approach each other, sympathizing with others rather than coming at this with an me first, get out of my family type of mentality. How do I find the ability to sustain living in a world and not conforming to the world? It's when I feel I have a family behind me, beside me. We're brothers and sisters in arms, not leading to a revolt, but we're brothers and sisters in arms in the sense of a brotherhood, a sisterhood. There's a familiness. There's supposed to be that unity, familiness, harmony about the people of God that allows me to not fall prey to the pressures of the culture of our world trying to make me become like them. Also, there's the pressures of the world and the opposition of the world that if I know I'm in this with others, I can face the persecution. I can face the pressures that come. We see some 
crazy descriptions of this. Acts 2.42 through 47 or 2.44 through 47 describes this type of family among the believers, these early believers. It says, all the believers were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. There was this genuine sense of love, communalness. If you have a need, I would even sell what I have to give to you. I wonder if that's the way we would be described today. Jesus in John 13, 34 says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Is love the greatest description that you think the church, uh, the outside world would describe the church as? I wonder. A lot of, I think, certain persuasions of church would say we are defined by doctrine. We hold to the truth of doctrine. Another, maybe more, uh, two extremes, doctrine or maybe by, man, we want to be known by loving the less fortunate or by social justice causes. And so we're going to be known for loving the outsiders. But I wonder who would describe us as loving each other as a description for being the disciples of Christ. Maybe doctrine, maybe loving others, but do we, are we known for loving each other? I, I haven't heard that as a description lately. And I'm not sure if that would be how the world would describe us today, that we are known as Jesus' disciples because of how we love each other. It is to be a defining characteristic. That love, that bond, that affinity together helped them endure suffering. It also helped them live obediently to Jesus while they endured suffering and the desire of the world to pull them to conform to who they were. There's a phrase I want us to look at as we work through this passage, and that's this. Leaning into community and Jesus as Lord empowers me to embrace God's blessing as I endure opposition. That first part, leaning into community. It's a foundation for my ability to endure opposition. It's a foundation for me to be able to see my life as a blessing. And we're going to see that next as we move on into verse 9 in 1 Peter 3. He goes on and says this, Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Again, similarly to what we saw last week in chapter two, this idea of counterculturally, if you're facing persecution, you're to respond with grace. Very different from what we would think a natural response would be. Why? Because to this you were called, so you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's, Peter here is referring to Psalm 34, 12 through 16 in this particular section. 
He goes on in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. When we look at this, again, this phrase that we're repeating, this idea that leaning into community, and then this second part, leaning into Jesus as Lord. If I lean into community, I'm, I'm a people of God. I have identity and belonging in the people of God. But as I view Jesus as Lord, if that's truly my filter, if that's a part of my identity, that I am not my Lord, the president is not my Lord, ultimately Jesus is my Lord. And everything in my life is to submit to him. If that is a part of my filter, belonging to community and Jesus as Lord, man, it empowers me to embrace God's blessing. May not look like the blessing that I want, but it opens my eyes to be able to see what I have as his blessing and it empowers me to endure opposition. How? Jesus as Lord allows me to submit to what Jesus defines as a blessing. Man, what if blessing actually means suffering? What if my suffering allows me to identify more with what Jesus suffered and how he died on the cross for me? And in that way, I feel a closeness to God. Would I be willing to endure suffering to receive a blessing in, a, in an ability to, to actually understand what Jesus went through for me? Or would I say, I don't want that kind of blessing. <laughs> God, you, you reserve that blessing for someone else. I don't want that blessing. Or, or maybe the idea is not repaying evil, um, the ability to instead see uh, suffering as the good day and a life worth living. Could I actually look at opposition in my life? Could I look at my maybe religious freedoms being restricted? Could I look at being canceled? Could I look at people who choose to no longer be my friend because of my beliefs as a blessing? I think it's difficult at times in our life, especially when we even have some within our Christian persuasion teaching the opposite. Many teach a blessing. If you are blessed by God, then you receive health and you receive wealth. Well, that flies in absolute opposition to what Peter is saying here. Man, blessing could actually accompany suffering. Blessing could actually accompany an ability for you to die for your faith. Could I actually surrender to Jesus as Lord and accept God's blessing if it included suffering? What other thing do we see in here that is uh, an ability to receive blessing from God. Well, we see Jesus as Lord gives us an intimacy with God. 
It's an ultimate blessing. We see this in verse 12. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Is, is intimacy with God enough for you and for me? If everything else in my life absolutely was destroyed, if, if I lost everything else, if I never received anything good in my life, but I, had, I was offered intimacy with God, would that be viewed as an ultimate blessing that would be enough fulfillment in my life? Or do I need my identity in my job? Do I need blessing through wealth? Do I need blessing through the right marriage and the right amount of kids and the right thing to happen in my world? Do, do I have to have other things to actually view my life as good, as blessed? Or is intimacy with God enough? You see, when I allow Jesus to be my Lord, and this becomes my filter, I allow him to define what blessing is. I allow him to define what a good life actually means, what that would look like. I, I allow him to define those things, not culture. Culture around us would say, no, a good life means the American dream. You have the right house, the right car, the right job. You have enough for retirement to live well. And, and you live blessed in, in the idea of health. That, that's an American dream. And that you count for something in that American dream. Uh, what if that's not Jesus as Lord's description for your life, for my life? We, we see in Corinthians 4, 9 through 13, a different type of life. And it was actually one that was viewed as good. We see here in verse nine, it says this, for it seemed to me that God was, has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. Lean into that. To angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. We're cursed. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. What if our idea of blessing is formed by our culture, even in our church today. This idea of being blessed, <laughs> this idea of Jesus as Lord being good for my life, this being the picture of a good life seems incredibly countercultural, even within our Christian realm today. What if you and I are supposed to be on display for the universe? where angels are watching you and me. How we respond to opposition, how we respond to suffering, how we respond to pressures of the world, calling us to give up following Jesus in obedience and just say, scrap it, it's not worth it. Just give in and follow the culture of where we are. What if we're on display and the angels are watching, the world is watching us today? What if we were willing to say, Jesus, you being Lord means that this is okay with me.
And I would actually count it a blessing if in any way it caused you to be seen as strong through my weakness. If it caused you to be honored in my dishonor. If it caused you to be made known throughout the world and honored even in the heavenlies if we are to suffer here on earth. What if Jesus as Lord means that you and I give up what the world says blessing is defined by? What if we actually could say, Jesus, I'm willing for you daily to define what my good day should look like, what my blessing should be, even if it means suffering. When we look at verse nine, it says, not to repay evil with evil, but instead to respond with a blessing. So not only does Jesus define my sense of being blessed, but also he defines the ability for me to be a blessing. The ability to say, you may respond in evil to me, but I'm going to offer a blessing. What does that mean? Well, that's offering grace. It's offering love. It's offering Jesus' message of hope. We saw that keep a clear conscience of good reputation through the adversity in verse 15 and 16. He says, make sure you actually have an answer. Make sure that when you are struggling, when you are facing opposition, he says, be prepared to give an answer for your hope, but do it with gentleness and respect. In that way, you keep a clear conscience so that when people are oppressing you, they have to look at how you respond and how you continue to keep your credibility in the face of that opposition. And it causes them, even if they speak maliciously against you, to be ashamed by their slander. In other words, internally, even if outwardly, they continue to bash you. Internally, they have to have a gut check. What's different about him? Why does he live differently? Why is there still love? Why is he responding without anger, without hatred? Why is he able to keep a clear conscience even as I show hate and disdain and opposition to him? There has to become at some point a gut check for those individuals. And it gives us an ability to actually bless them because it points them to something that's not us. It points them to God who's living through us. It validates our answer for hope. You see this in Paul and Silas when they're in jail after being beaten wrongfully and put in prison. The Philippian jailer, it says, as they're worshiping and singing praises to God, it said every, all the prisoners in there were leaning in and listening to Paul and Silas because they were responding differently. And then when they have an opportunity to run away, they stop and, and they wait and they say, jailer, don't kill yourself. They offer grace. When they were beaten and they were oppressed, they were a blessing. What happened? The jailer gave his life to Christ. He and his whole family were baptized. You and I are on display for the world around us. The entire universe is watching. Do you allow culture to dictate your blessing? And are you willing is Jesus Lord enough in your life that even as you face persecution, as you face opposition, as you face pressures, can you respond with a blessing to those who oppose you? Can you offer a hope for why there's something different in you? Does your 
attitude and character and love back up your words. I wonder, are we as a church holding credibility in our culture today or are we losing credibility in our culture today? How would we respond to opposition? Are we willing to be a blessing to those who even hate us and despise us today? Or are we responding with anger the way they are responding to us? I I love this picture of this. (laughs) I I don't love the scenario, but I love the picture that's lived out in Stephen's life in Acts 7.59. says, while they were stoning him, while they're chucking rocks to kill him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Can you imagine your last words as people are literally chucking these giant stones to crush your body and kill you? God, don't hold this against them. Who does that emulate? It emulates Jesus on the cross saying, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, Stephen was able to live this even to the very end, Jesus as Lord, who defined his blessing to be willing to die for his faith. And in that be a blessing to those who literally were chucking the rocks that crushed his body. Can you respond that way today? Can I respond that? Can we endure in that manner today? I think it's increasingly difficult for us as a church. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that our first response to opposition? Last, this idea of a filter of Jesus as Lord, it empowers me to obey Jesus, even as the culture is sucking me to follow culture rather than what scripture defines as the pattern of my life. Turn from evil and do good. We see this passage teach these. Seek peace, pursue it. Suffer for doing what is right. Have an answer of hope during difficulty. Respond with gentleness and respect. Am I willing to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And even though culture desires for me to abandon what you've said is good and true, I'm going to obey you in the face of opposition, in the face of culture trying to get me to conform, I am going to follow and obey you. That strength of a Christian community, that filter as Jesus as Lord, it empowers me to embrace God's blessing, even if it means suffering. It embrace that intimacy with God. That's enough for me. Even if nothing else happens good in my life, that is enough. And it, it enables me to endure opposition, even if that opposition lasts the rest of my temporary time on this earth. What are some takeaways this morning? Oh, here's a takeaway. <laughs> Where am I struggling to lean into community? I, I think we all have to ask that. Am I struggling to live authentically? Am I trying to put on a, a falsehood, a facade to just fit in? Or maybe I feel like if I'm real, people will reject me. So I'm just only allowing people to know pieces of me, but not all of me. Where are you struggling to lean into community today? Where are you struggling to lean into Jesus as Lord today? Would it be in the ability to find a blessing? Would it be the ability to actually endure? Would it be the ability to continue to obey? Are you allowing the world to pull you to conform to culture? 
Are you living with the true identity as Jesus as your Lord? What, what area do you struggle with in that in your life? And then last, what is Jesus telling me to do? And what am I willing to do? What am I willing to do about it today? I, I would encourage you in those three questions, don't just leave what we've heard today and just walk out and go, okay, that was some information. But what is God leading you to do? What is he leading you to surrender? What step of obedience is he leading you to take? And take it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you don't leave it up to our culture to define what is real, what is true, what is good, what is a blessing, but you give us a filter. Thank you for giving us even the ability to know who should be on the throne of our life. That you spell it out in black and white, Jesus, you are to be my Lord. And I should allow you to define what is good, what is a blessing, what it means to follow you and obey you, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of a world that's pulling me to conform rather than to stand out. God, I pray that we, that we are able to see that we are standing as a people of God today in a, in a way that impacts our universe, that angels are watching us, that the world around us is watching us and that God, as we lean into community and as we lean into you as our Lord, that people would have to say there's something distinctly different about them and the characteristics of the way they love each other and the way they love us, even as we hate them, that it causes them to lean into something beyond us. It causes them to lean into you and they have to answer those ultimate questions. God, use us today to rise above culture, to live a third way, to live united together and to live for impact and mission daily. We just pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.